From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison, I'm Adam Wigger. I'm Mia Wagner. And I'm Michael Mikowski. In this podcast series, we will speak with UW-Madison faculty members and other experts to hear their thoughts on the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as the political and global changes that the situation has warranted. This is 1050 Bascom, COVID-19. Today on 1050 Bascom, we welcome back Eileen Harrington, who teaches our very popular public policy class and who has an incredibly distinguished career in Washington, D.C., managing several federal agencies. Eileen has served as the Chief Operating Officer of the U.S. Small Business Administration. During her time at the Federal Trade Commission, Eileen led the team that created the Do Not Call Registry, for which she won the prestigious Service to America Medal. Upon retirement from D.C., Eileen did anything but retire. We are very fortunate that she came back to Madison, where she teaches in our department's public policy course. In the spring, Eileen spends her time in Tucson, where she teaches administrative law at the University of Arizona. Eileen also runs her own consulting company and is involved in politics at the local, state, and national level. Thank you so much for joining us today, Eileen. It's a pleasure. So we looked back at our transcript and our interview with you from the summer 2019. Um, And one of the questions we asked you seemed relatively abstract at the time, but now it's more relevant than ever. Really what we asked you was, at its very basic level, the federal government's job is to keep us safe from things like nuclear attacks, pandemics, natural disasters. But at the time, no one predicted a global pandemic. And yet here we are two months later into lockdown. How would you characterize the government's response, especially considering this question that we asked you so many months ago? Well, I think the the federal response has been disappointing and chaotic. Um, And, uh, you know, one of the things that you just said in in the lead up to the question that uh, last summer, no one was predicting a pandemic. Actually, that's wrong. There are departments in the federal government that have been predicting pandemic for quite some time. Um, It's why um, there was a a pandemic response team that uh, was in existence before uh, 2017. Um, I think that that one of the reasons that the response has been so poor is that there has been very little attention from the White House uh, paid to the operation of government. That's simply. Um, I looked this morning at the online tool that's maintained by the Partnership for Public Service, which is an outstanding nonprofit organization based in Washington that has as its mission uh, recruiting the best and brightest to public service and strengthening the civil service and public service core of the United States. And they they keep a tool that shows um, what the status is of uh, 751 positions in the federal government that are very important, that require presidential nominees uh, to be sent to the Senate and confirmed in order to fill those jobs. And here we are three and a half years into this administration and only 68% of those positions are filled right now. And these are important jobs. These are the jobs that exist across the federal government to oversee the work of career civil servants, 
to make sure that the policies of the incumbent administration are woven into the work that they're doing, but to oversee the work. And uh, when those positions are vacant, career civil servants fill in on an acting basis, but they lack all of the authority that um, presidential appointees who are confirmed by the Senate carry when they occupy those jobs. And what that means is that whole departments of the federal government and important programs aren't being managed in the way that they were meant to be. And I think that there is a direct correlation between the lack of um, priority placed on the management and oversight of the federal government by the administration. And we are seeing in its response to the COVID-19 pandemic. You bring up the, the concept of legitimacy, especially in reference to um, officials that the administration puts forward that says like, you know, this person is going to lead this agency. Do you think that there's a problem with legitimacy of our current administration's officials and how people are reacting to directives and information coming from these agencies? Um, you know, I think that the, to the extent that there is an issue about legitimacy, I think it comes directly from the president who frequently questions the legitimacy of the institutions of government. So for example, yesterday, um, you know, the president sent out um, uh, an average of one tweet every 7.2 minutes. And most of those tweets um, uh, had to do with attacks on the FBI and the Department of Justice, and especially the officials who were um, in senior in those agencies during the Obama administration. And the gist of the messages is that they were all corrupt and dirty cops and they were doing terrible things and they should be indicted and put in prison. Um, uh, you know, uh, I think that, uh, that that kind of message about the institutions of government, you know, when, when you think about who, who the people are who lead federal agencies, in any administration. They are people who are nominated by the President of the United States, vetted and confirmed by the United States Senate. Um, to say that, you know, boatloads of those people are corrupt, are crooks, are dirty cops, should be indicted and jailed, um, calls into question the legitimacy of the office of the President of the United States Senate and the confirmation procedure and it also calls into question you know the legitimacy of those agencies and institutions of government and so i really think that the problem that we have with legitimacy right now comes from the messages that are being sent and are being uh carried on some media that leave people with the impression that they cannot trust the process of government the institutions of government, and the persons who are selected and confirmed by the Senate to carry leadership roles in those institutions. I think it's ironic that, uh, <clears throat> that right now uh, we have a president who has done more to undermine confidence in the legitimacy of government than 
any one person or any one movement. Yeah, kind of turning from looking at the president and the administration's tackling of this crisis, what is the role of the Congress in all this? And is Congress contributing at all to this problem of legitimacy? Well, Congress, the, the most important role that Congress has to play right now is um, the oversight role that it clearly uh, is given in Article I of the Constitution. One of the challenges is that uh, the administration also has simply refused to participate uh, time and time again um, in the oversight procedure, uh, whether it's refusing to comply with congressional subpoenas, refusing to turn over records and documents uh, that are requested by Congress, directing agencies to refuse to do that. Um, uh, but yes, Congress has uh, a very important role to play. Um, what's interesting right now that it's almost like um, the question of health has become a partisan question. You know, I was just looking this morning at some polling results that say that 88% um, of Democrats are practicing social distancing and think that it's important to do that. And 60% of Republicans are practicing social distancing and think it's important to do that. And it just sort of is surprising to me that we have a partisan difference around um, interpretations of the validity of information coming from public health officials and scientists, but we do. And so you see that play out. The United States Senate has been in session in Washington, DC in the last couple of weeks, but the House isn't in session because the House leaders believe it's not safe for their members to get on planes and get on trains and come back to Washington to meet. Uh, and so how, and, and the House, uh, does not have procedural rules that permit it to meet remotely. So how Congress exercises its oversight function right now is um, uh, really um, kind of hard to see. Uh, it's hard to see how the House plays the role that it is meant to play if it's not in session. Um, committee chairs can send out letters, they can send out uh, subpoenas, and maybe they're doing that, but um, this pandemic has really uh, unevenly halted a lot of the ordinary operations of government. Yeah, thank you for that. It's a very informative answer. I have a follow-up question before we get into the one I was planning on asking, but when you're talking about looking at the legitimacy of these positions and characters that in a lot of cases have yet to be filled when if you were to assess sort of like this COVID task force that's been formed um, there's been a lot of criticisms in the news about people like Jared Kushner making um, getting into a position on there even um, Vice President Pence and his qualifications for being in this sort of issue but then also balancing that with public health officials who've dealt with this like Dr. Fauci and Dr. Birks is it fair of us to be critical of who occupies positions in these sort of extraordinary groups like the COVID task force? Well, um, I don't think it's an un I don't think it's an off limits topic for analysis and possibly criticism. This is the most serious crisis uh, faced by the United States in a century, and uh, so it makes sense that there would be 
a, the highest level task force created by the, the White House. It, it makes sense that the vice president uh, would lead it. Um, uh, I would note that, vice, that then Vice President Biden uh, was responsible for leading the implementation of the Recovery Act during the first two years of the Obama administration. That was the most important thing happening in government then, and the vice president led it. Um, and I was actually involved in, in that. Uh, that's why I was the chief operating officer at the, the SBA. I was asked to go from the Federal Trade Commission over to the SBA because they had to get billions and billions and billions of dollars of loan guarantees out the door to get capital to small businesses to help bring the economy back after the Great Recession. And, um, and we all reported to the vice president's office um, on, that, on that work that we were doing. Um, you really want to have all of the relevant parts of government working together um, with management from the highest and leadership from the highest level. So it makes sense to me that there would be a task force, that the White House would oversee it, that someone like the vice president would be placed in charge. But you want in that sort of situation to have the very best people from throughout the government who have the relevant expertise and knowledge working together on the task force, people who can turn back to their agencies and produce results and research and get information, like do it overnight. You need people who really understand how government works. Um, Jared Kushner is, is, you know, like totally out of his league having any role in this. Um, the United States government operates under a whole series of laws and regulations and constitutional principles. And when you're responding to a crisis, the thing that you don't want is to choose a path that is patently illegal and that is likely to be challenged in the courts, resulting in important action being delayed because it, the people who took the action went about it in a way that's unlawful. You know, we don't have a monarchy in the United States. The president can say, um, unless the president actually has the authority to do that. Agencies cannot act without authority. And when they act, they have to act according to a whole bunch of laws, like the Administrative Procedures Act and, you know, the Anti-Deficiency Act. And they're, they're just a whole bunch of laws. And there are lots of really capable people in senior positions throughout the federal government who understand how the government works. You know, we don't want people who live in the United States do not want a government that is not subject to law, that just runs amok and does stuff. The, the, the whole reason for the Constitution was that when the, the colonies were subject to the British monarch, the monarch did whatever the monarch wanted to do. And the representatives of the monarch, um, you know, trammeled on the rights of people. And so the idea here uh, is that no one is above the law, that we are a government of laws, that there should be laws and processes, and that the Constitution protects people's individual rights and liberties. And, um, and that constitutional principle says that the government must operate according to law. And the problem that the Trump administration has had again and again and again 
is that the president has issued executive orders or directed agency heads to do things that violate laws, both procedural laws and substantive laws. So you, should, you don't want somebody like Jared Kushner in charge of anything, actually, because he doesn't know anything. And he doesn't have people working with him who know anything about how government is supposed to operate, what the legal constraints are. It's not that he, I, I don't know anything about him. He may be a very smart guy, but, but everything that I read about what he's doing, he, he has a shadow task force that is made up of, uh, that is staffed by a bunch of volunteers from McKinsey and other consulting companies, and none of them have any knowledge or experience in government. And so they will not be able to get anything done. Um, and they'll probably result in there being a lot of delays instead of forward progress. Yeah, so it sounds like it's even more than just, I think, looking at the news too, a lot of attention gets paid toward the norms and how like norms are being broken under this administration mm -hmm. in this reaction. But what you're saying sounds like it's more than just a question about norms, but there's actually legal implications and legal oh, questions. Oh, my happening. goodness. Yes. Well, so, I mean, it, it started on almost day one. Uh, you might remember that one of the very first things that the president did when he took office was issue kind of one after another executive order having to do with immigration. Right. And every single one of those executive orders has been challenged uh, and held up. And many of them have been either overturned or in the face of a court injunction against the order, the administration would just pivot and go in a different direction to try to get the same result using a different tool. If not an executive order, then an emergency regulation. None of them have held up, or I think maybe elements of a few. But, um, you know, if you actually want the government to change policy, develop new policy, and have that policy implemented, um, this administration um, is not a case study in how to make that happen. It's a case study in how to sabotage yourself, you know, at almost every turn. Now we're in the midst of a pandemic and, um, and not that all of these other actions haven't mattered because they matter greatly, greatly, all, especially the stuff having to do with it, with immigration has, immigration and asylum, these have been radical departures from US law and policy. Um, and they've really, you know, had a huge impact on hundreds of thousands and millions of people. Now we're dealing with this pandemic. And, you know, you really would want, I mean, what I would want to see is a very strong example of the strengths of federalism in this. I would want to see really strong, capable leadership from the federal government. I would want to see important policy coming from the federal government. Um, I would want to see the federal government working effectively with the states. Uh, the, the states and the federal government have different authorities under the Constitution and different responsibilities. But, you know, we would want to see them working hand in hand. And it's just not happening. Um, uh, and I think the reason it's not happening from the federal government is that 
at the highest levels of the United States government right now, we either see, you know, really important jobs that haven't been filled, or we see um, a White House and filled with senior administration officials who don't know anything about government and don't understand how it works, don't know what the legal requirements are, um, and are really more concerned about politics than they are about important policy and about the government fulfilling this fundamental role, which is to protect the United, to protect the people of the United States. I mean, you have to ask, is the United States government right now doing a good job protecting its citizens? That's a key question. How would you assess, given this sort of federalist nature that is or is not working for us. How do you assess the state's role in this um, in the COVID-19 pandemic? Do you see them sort of rising to the challenge or filling the gap that they, they are experiencing? Well, it's important to note that in our, const in our constitutional system of federalism, the states hold very important police powers. Um, and, and the purpose of police powers um, is to um, protect public safety and health. So when it comes to taking direct action to protect the public health and the safety of citizens. The states have enormous responsibility and authority. Um, and how, you know, it, it, each state has been formulating its own um, response to this pandemic. Um, it's interesting, a week ago, I drove from Tucson, Arizona back to Madison. So, um, uh, we drove through a lot of states uh, and saw really different things in those states. The The situation is different from state to state, um, and noticeably so. Uh, so the states, you know, have authority and they're exercising it. You know, I'm, I'm glad to be back home in Wisconsin. Um, I know that there's controversy here about whether... Uh, Governor Evers' safer-at-home order is really necessary to protect the health and safety of Wisconsinites. Um, I, uh, I find it disheartening uh, that in our own state, um, legislative leaders and the governor have been unable to work together. Um, and, uh, but I think that that under the Constitution, um, the states do have very significant responsibility and authority, and it's being exercised differently in different states. You know, when, when I look at the very early and aggressive actions taken in California and New York, uh, our, you know, two of our, California's our largest state, New York, the third or fourth largest, you know, I'm I'm actually quite admiring of how those state governments have performed, and uh, I think it's I think that in a different time, I, you know, under President George W. Bush, if this had happened, we would see much more leadership coming from the federal government um, in terms of policy, nationwide policy. Um, I think we would we would have seen much more coming from President Obama. Um, I think uh, that this administration, I, I think, you know, this administration has really been a disappointment to me because I know 
that the United States government and the civil service and the, the people in these agencies, if they were allowed to do their jobs right now, could really do a good job for us. I'm confident of that. Looking at the economic devastation that's sort of taking hold of the country, some of which, or most of which we kind of, it's hard to even um, assess right now. Putting on your former um, chief operating officer of the Small Business Administration hat and sort of looking at the historic unemployment mm -hmm. and the devastation of small businesses that you dealt with and you helped work with during your time, can you tell us what the current person in that position might be thinking, the, per the person holding that office, and sort of what tools might be at their disposal right now? Well, that person is thinking uh, and would have been thinking from the beginning, oh my goodness, we do not have the resources to implement the programs that we're being asked to implement. Um, the, uh, the Small Business Administration uh, is a very small agency, um, had fewer than 5,000 employees going into this fiscal year, and, um, and I think that, that the president's budget for this year uh, called for an 11% reduction in their workforce. Um, so um, if I had been in the job, I would have known that the uh, Paycheck Protection Program was going to be a logistical nightmare for us. Um, the SBA um, technology uh, infrastructure is very old. Um, when I have read in the paper that, you know, it crashed, <laughs> I thought, well, of course. I mean, it, it just isn't built to handle the volume that is being put through the system. The, so the, the SBA is being asked to push out about, um, close, I think, close to $600 billion in um, guarantees for loans that are made by private lenders. The way that the, um, the, way that the SBA loan program works is, th their main program, is that um, the loans are actually made by private lenders and they're guaranteed by the United States government if the borrower defaults. So in order to process one of these loans for a small business under this emergency program, the small business has to go to a lender, a, a private lender, make application. Uh, the lender has to satisfy itself that this borrower meets the requirements of the program and that they're willing to make the loan. And then they have to put the whole package of paper, input it. They have to input a whole bunch of data. And it goes through the SBA processing system. And each one of those applications has to be reviewed by somebody. And, you know, so they can use good technology tools, but it takes time. Last year, the SBA did about $21 billion in loan guarantees under this program. They have been asked in the last six weeks to do $600 billion worth of loan guarantees. I mean, the magnitude is immense. So if I were in the job, I would have known at the get-go that we were really going to have trouble getting this done and that there were going to be a lot of hiccups and glitches along the way. I think that it's remarkable that they've done as well as they've done, given the short staff that they have and the, age, the aging technology that they have. Yeah, yeah, that's extraordinary to think about. 
We can kick it over to kind of looking at the future economic landscape. So what do you make of the economic landscape moving forward in the next year, the next five years? Do you think a bounce back is possible? I don't know. Um, I, you know, I think this is kind of uncharted territory. Uh, you know, there are big differences between the Great Recession of 2008 and this situation. And in, in 2008, the real hits were felt by people working in financial services, housing related, mortgage, um, you know, many more white collar uh, types were affected. Um, in this situation, there's a huge impact uh, on service industry jobs. Um, you know, the, in 2008, 2009, a majority of individuals who lost their jobs and suffered direct hits were men. Um, in this um, current situation, uh, a disproportionate um, part of the population who've lost jobs are women because women are more likely to work in service industry, restaurant, food industry kinds of work than men. Um, and so, you know, we see that the economic impacts are quite disparate, just like the impact of the disease itself. Um, and so, you know, I think that we are living in a time when our politics are very polarized and um, tribal. And uh, to the extent that... Um, more of the people who are suffering the economic fallout of this current crisis are um, women and employees in service industry kinds of work and lower wage work uh, who are um, maybe people of color, um, maybe people who live in parts of the country that aren't so influential. You know, I think it's very possible that we could have a recovery that uh, benefits people who were doing very well already. And, um, you know, I don't know when it is that, uh, when you think about all of the people who work in restaurants and in kind of the food industry in the United States, you know, when, when will people be comfortable? When will restaurants, will restaurants, you know, in the next few years be a thing or not? I mean, and will a lot of people go to them? Will people feel comfortable going to them? You know, what's going to happen to those people? I think there are really important questions uh, to address here in the United States about um, the problems that have been plaguing us well before the pandemic problems around income inequality and um, access, you know, and um, impediments to access that Im impact much more greatly communities of color, people of lower income, women, you know, the, these are, these, these problems have been here. And, you know, this pandemic has really pulled the curtain back for all to see. If, if we hadn't seen already. Continuing with talking about the economy, 
public servants right now are having to make difficult decisions regarding, you know, public health and a healthy economy. Can you give us any insight you might have into this conflict that public servants are have when they are trying to balance the public the public's health and trying to stabilize and reinvigorate the their like local economy's health? Sure. Well, these are important policy decisions, and for the most part, they're not decisions made by public servants. You know, people in the civil service um, do the work, uh, make gather information, make best recommendations, and the people who are in political jobs make the policy decisions. Um, and so, you know, I'm sure that there are at all levels of government right now really robust discussions occurring between people who are in the public health sector and people who are in the various parts of government that, you know, exist to support healthy economic behavior. Um, uh, you know, at the local level, um, you know, these are decisions that the mayor and the county executive and the common council and the county board are wrestling with. Um, at the state level, you know, I, I wish at the state level in Wisconsin that we saw evidence that legislative leaders were willing to engage robustly with the government, the governor in, in these same discussions. Um, you know, and at the federal level, um, it's hard to see evidence of any robust discussion. I mean, I don't know, you know, it, we, we get sort of a different decree every day about those important policy matters. I mean, public policy is the government statement of what it intends to do about a particular problem that requires an allocation of public resources to solve. If ever there were problems that require allocations of public resources, and I don't just mean money, I mean regulation, law, um, bully pulpit, you know, all the different resources that are there. The, these problems require allocation of public resources. These are important public policy matters. And, um, you know, I think that the country is actually hungry for leadership on this right now. You know, you, you see that there are some people who are really frustrated. I mean, I cannot, can you imagine being a small business owner right now and having your business just grind to a halt on a particular day and not be able to reopen it. Um, I understand how that, I mean, and, and that, that, you know, these are businesses that people have built up over the years and the decades and suddenly they have no revenue. They have no, they can't pay, they can't make payroll, you know, and they're, some people are losing their businesses. This is a really bad time. And I don't find any meaningful leadership uh, coming uh, from the top levels here. Uh, I don't think it's helpful to say, you know, we need to open up. I mean, why, does it, why isn't someone standing up and giving a thoughtful talk to the nation about, about what the cross currents are here, how hard this is, that we really understand you know, that you, your livelihood has been lost because of this, you know, and this is what we're going to do and why, and this is what we know and this is what we don't know. I think when we talk about circling back about legitimacy of government, um, you know, the most important thing, uh, I think, is for the public to have some confidence 
that the people who are making policy are, are considering all of the factors, are open about how they're weighting those, and are making their best judgments, and, and are doing it in a way that is empathetic and, and really acknowledging of the terrible suffering, and also has some sort of plan to do really dramatic things um, to help alleviate the suffering. You know, you, we have to go back and look at, at um, the New Deal, at the Works Progress Administration during the Roosevelt administration, um, and how that became the engine that brought the country back uh, or helped to bring the country back. World War II really brought it back. But, you know, we have some, pre we have some precedent here in the United States for the government intervening in really effective ways to um, help pull people out of the ditch. And I think that's really needed right now. So the last question we've been asking um, everyone on our podcast um, is just if you have any words of wisdom, particularly for graduating students, um, political science majors, how they can be civically active and create hope uh, for the months and years ahead. Well, be involved. You know, there are a, a whole lot of ways for you to plug in right now. Um, if you're in Madison, um, there are state legislative offices, city council, county council, uh, interest groups, um, you know, volunteer, get internships, you know, just get connected. Um, I think it's right now maybe a particularly challenging time to get paid work, but there is work. And so if you have a passion for public service and public policy, um, th there are no shortage of places that would be delighted to welcome you and put you to work. Um, if you have a particular point of view, um, you know, pursue it. Find the movement or the party or the candidate and really put yourself into it. Um, I think that um, it's disappointing for me to see in kind of election cycle after election cycle that, uh, that there is typically a lower turnout among younger voters than among other age brackets. And, you know, I would really urge any of your colleagues and you, anybody who's a political science major, I'm assuming actually cares about this stuff, you know, really work hard to get everybody registered to vote and voting. That's a hugely important thing to do. Um, and it's critical now the the um, and just you know stay with it. Um, I think uh, it's remarkable that um, so many people I know, including me, um, kind of set off on their careers in public service by volunteering for campaigns or causes. Um, in college and doing organizing and learning those skills. And um, so I would just urge that, that people get involved, figure out what their passion is, get involved in it and stick with it. Thank you so much for joining us today with your incredible professionalism and insight into our current situation. Oh, sure.
For more information regarding the podcast, please visit policy.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. For more information on the university's policies and responses to the pandemic, please visit covid19.wisc.edu. You can find more episodes on all streaming platforms. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate, follow, and subscribe. Thanks for listening to 1050 Bascom COVID-19. Stay safe and take care of each other.